You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. A magazine asked a young man named Matt Fitzgerald to interview a prisoner on death row. And he was nervous. When he got into the cell, though, he was surprised. He saw a man who looked younger than he expected. He was clean-cut, short brown hair, and had hipster glasses. The criminal's name was David Steffen. He had murdered a teenager. But what troubled Matt Fitzgerald was that the more David spoke, the more insistent he got about grace. And this troubled Matt. After a while, he interrupted David and he said, Hey, what about the girl? Look where you are, man. And David Steffen said this, I'll never forget my crime. It's always deeply, deeply disturbing to me. But there has to come a point where you receive forgiveness and then forgive yourself. Not in order to justify your actions, but in order to accept God's love. That's where he was. Now, the Apostle Paul writes his second epistle to a church he founded called Corinth because he wants that church to know where the Apostle Paul is. Not in his suffering, but in God's love. Now, the Apostle Paul was not well respected in the church he founded. The Corinthians would rather have had a different sort of leader. To them, the Apostle Paul just seemed to get lost too often. He, he had too many character flaws. He suffered too much. And they complained about that. But I, I think the reason, the real reason, was that they were aware in their own lives that they also got lost in life, that they also had character flaws, and that they also suffered. And they would rather have had a leader who would lead them away from pain. But the Apostle Paul knows too much about Jesus Christ. He knows that Jesus Christ doesn't lead us away or around pain, but he gives us something better. He leads us through pain. And that's where we begin to find real hope. Let's look at this together in the Bible. Would you please open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. If you didn't bring one, no problem. There's a black book in the rack in front of you. Please turn to page 937. And that's where you're going to find 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Before we read it, let me just make a note. The Apostle Paul is a speaker here, and he's using what we call a literary we. Uh, he's actually talking about himself. Singular, first person, I. But it's just a literary convention sometimes to use a plural pronoun. So I want, but I want you to know that because Paul's being very vulnerable and, and very personal in this passage. This is his own individual experience. All right, so if you've got it and you're able, would you stand? Let's read this text aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death 
so that we would rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He who rescued us from so deadly a peril will continue to rescue us. On him we have set our hope that he will rescue us again. As you also join in helping us by your prayers, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. I want to reflect with you for a few minutes on how an apprentice grows in hope. And I want to offer this reflection in three days, metaphorical days. Uh, Day one, the evidence for despair. Day two, the case for hope. And then day three, on the third day, practicing resurrection. Let's begin with day one, the evidence for despair. Here I want to invite you to discover that we can't do it alone. Now what happened to Paul, this great affliction? He, he, he says, I, I felt as though I had a sentence of death. Maybe the apostle was on death row. We know in Asia, uh, Asia Minor, the capital is Ephesus, there were, there were riots. Perhaps Paul was in prison. He would be in prison on several occasions, and maybe he was sentenced to be executed. Or it may be that he's speaking metaphorically, and he's making allusion to what he would refer to later on in this letter as the thorn in my flesh that torments me. And I ask God to take it away. Could be a character flaw. Or it's also possible that he's gotten sick, that he had a terminal illness, and it just looks like he's not going to make it. Whatever it is, it was bad, and he doesn't tell us. And it's interesting to me that he's not specific. I wonder why. I can't help but speculate that perhaps Paul doesn't mention specifically what he went through because he wants you to fill in the blank with your own affliction. I mean, if, if Paul had said, uh, this is what happened to me, such and such and such and such, then you might look at that and go, oh, well, that's the sort of thing that happens to apostles. I can't relate to that. See, but this way, he invites us to read our afflictions right, in, right into what he's saying. This is an invitation that he says, I don't want you to be unaware because he knows you and I suffer as well. What happened to him isn't as important as how he feels about it. Look at verse 8 again. He says, we, we were so utterly unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Whoa. You want to read that again? You sure you caught that? This is the Apostle Paul saying, I, I was nearly suicidal. I gave up the hope of living. It was so bad. This is an apostle. This is not just one of the followers of Jesus. This is one of the greatest followers of Jesus. And he's telling you, I gave up hope. Now, this is real despair. And there are two parts to despair. I want you to catch this because there are always two parts to despair. There's circumstance and decision. Circumstance and decision. For Paul, we see circumstance in verse 8. He says... It's not specific, as I say, but generally, he says, whatever it was, we're so utterly, unbearably crushed. That's the circumstance. It was bad. 
by the way, he, he says it was beyond my capacity. The, the word uh, there is beyond my dunamis. Dunamis is the word from which we get the English word dynamite. I, I didn't have strength. I had nothing. I had, I had no, no The challenge that faced me was greater than my capacity. I was overwhelmed. That was the circumstance. But there's another part to despair. It's not just your circumstances. It's also the decision that you make about those circumstances. And here in verse 9, he tells us what it felt like. We felt like I had received the sentence of death. By the way, look right there. There's something missing in your translation that's there in the Greek. In, in the King James Version, if you were reading, it said, We felt like we'd received the sentence of death in ourselves. And that's a better translation. I would even translate it within ourselves or within myself. See, it may have been that he was on death row and somebody outside of him had said, you're going to die. Or maybe he had a terminal illness and everybody around him said, you're going to die. Whatever the case is, he took that sentence inside of himself. And it became his decision about his life as well. Now, the word sentence there means judicial decision. Verdict. It could be good or bad. Uh, but when you have a judicial decision, this word, you've always had a debate. You've always had a, a good argument, haven't you? Some, uh, one side is this and the other side says this. And then somebody, an official says, well, here's the decision, of the judicial decision of the verdict. The Apostle Paul is saying, inside of me, there's this debate. I'm going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm okay. I'm not okay. I'm going to live. I'm going to die. And he made the decision. For himself, he took it inside. This is not going to go well for me. That's the moment of despair right there. Now, I want to suggest that we all live with this kind of a desperate argument inside of us. All of us. And in the course of that argument, we'd like to find ourselves vindicated. And so we would try to use the evidence of our, of our lives, the circumstances... In the great case we're making in our argument that we're really okay, trust me on this one, and ultimately we live with the decision, whatever decision we will decide. And oftentimes our decisions about ourselves are not very favorable. We know what it's like to live with a sentence of death. And so I say, when we make this argument, we can't make it alone. We don't tend to adjudicate with very much grace when we look at our lives. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, says this. He says, one of the key features of depression, or I would add despair, is that we put ourselves on trial, produce lots of evidence for the prosecution and none for the defense, find ourselves guilty and pronounce sentence. Isn't that true? Now, it's not just those of us who have an awareness of despair in our lives. All of us are ultimately, in one way or another, trying to prove ourselves. Trying to prove ourselves for others, trying to prove ourselves for ourselves. Arthur Miller, in his play, After the Fall, has a character named Quentin. And in one of Quentin's speeches, he, this is haunting, this is what he says, For many years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, or smart. Then what a good lover, then a good father... Finally, how wise or powerful. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption. There was a moving on an upward path towards some elevation where I would be justified or even condemned. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. 
no judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument within oneself, the pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. That's Quentin in Arthur Miller's play. What's he saying? He's saying, no matter how good your, your circumstances are, no matter how hard you work in life to improve your circumstances, your looks, your health, your career, you will never be able to find inner peace. You will never be able to justify your own existence. can't do it alone. That's day one. That's what we call Good Friday, the day that our Savior Jesus Christ died. Let's move to day two which I call the case for hope. And here I'd like to encourage you to see that the worst thing is never the last thing. Paul, without a blink, moves from his despair in verse 8 to hope in verse 10. Did you notice that? Well, that proves that the difference between hope and despair is never your circumstances. Never your circumstances. There's a great ad out now uh, about a woman named Misty Copeland. I don't know if do you know Misty Copeland. She's one of the greatest living uh, world-class ballet dancers. She's an African-American woman. She's only the third African-American woman ever to grace the hallowed floors of the American Ballet Company. And uh, she's brilliant. In this ad, you see her physique. It's, it starts off with looking at her calves, and it's amazing, the sinew. And then she starts moving, and by the end of the ad, she's springing like a gazelle across this dark uh, stage. It's gorgeous to watch the power of her movement. But as you watch this, I don't know, 30-second spot or whatever it is, there's a voiceover. And it's, a, it's the voice of a girl. And she's reading something, and, and you hear her. She says this, the whole ad. Thank you for your application to our ballet academy. Unfortunately, you have not been accepted. You lack the right feet, Achilles tendons, turnout, torso length, and bust. You have the wrong body for ballet. And at 13, you are too old to be considered. Boy, she proved him wrong. And you know what that tells me? Never take a no from a person who does not have the authority to say yes. You will not be defined so much by your circumstances as you will by the decision that you make about your circumstances. She said yes, and you can say yes too. Hope has two parts, just like despair. There's circumstance and decision. So the question tonight that I'd like to ask the Apostle Paul is, well, if you want hope, how do you change the decision? You might not be able to change your circumstances. I don't know. Some, sometimes you can, but you might not be able to. How could you change then the decision? And the answer I think that Paul would give is you shift the evidence. You add one more exhibit into the evidentiary database. You can't change the evidence of your circumstances, but you can add the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That singular fact can change the outcome of the argument and the sentence. This is where the Apostle Paul goes. Notice what he says. I can tell you the meaning of this to me is that I am being taught how to rely not on myself, verse 9, but on God who raises the dead. Now he's introduced the resurrection. 
So I think the meaning of this whole suffering for me is I'm learning to rely not on myself, but on God, who is the one and the only one who raises the dead. And that begins to change everything for me. That begins to introduce real hope in the midst of despair. He uses there in verse 9 the key verb of the whole passage, and that's rely. I find that verb important, rely. Because in its original meaning, what it means is to become persuaded. To become convinced. The Apostle Paul looks at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and it starts to persuade him. It starts to convince him that God is trustworthy in his life. That God will always have another move when he's out of options. I have a friend named Nathan Kyes. Um, and he gave me permission to use his name. He's also one of your elders. Fifteen years ago, Nathan Kyes was on his way to work trying to catch his bus. He stepped off a curb and he was hit by a truck. Very severe brain trauma. And for 15 years, from that moment to this moment, every single one of his moments has been an experience of severe depression. He shared a story with uh, your elders recently. And he said, if you want to know what it's like to be me right now, you have to know that I live in Mordor. You know what Mordor is? A place of darkness, a place of despair and smoke and burning in the Lord of the Rings. That's where I live, he says, Mordor. And when you and I have a conversation, it's like you have Skyped in to Mordor. I, I can look over your shoulder and I can see in the distance the shire, the green grass and the blue sky, but I'm still in Mordor. And if you ask Nathan Kyes how it is that he could live with that and still have hope, he'll give you one fact. He says it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I love the way Nathan says it. He says, Jesus appeared, once he rose from the dead, only to unbelievers. Isn't that true? No one expected Jesus to come back from the dead, not even his disciples and followers. He'd said he'd do it, but he didn't. no one believed him. So everybody he came to was an unbeliever. But just a moment later, all of them were willing to give their lives for their faith, for the testimony that the one who is dead is now risen from the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, and that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And it's the one fact in a world of uncertainty and ambiguity on which I have learned always and only to rely I rely on God who raises the dead. That changes everything. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. If you wonder what this would look like in your life, let me ask you to imagine that you have a courtroom inside of your soul somewhere. And imagine that there's a prosecuting attorney there who's trying to make the case for your conviction. And the prosecuting attorney says, well, look at the way... He lived his life. Look at the circumstances he's in now and how incapable he is of managing this situation. I got to tell you, this is really the end for this person. He should get the death sentence. This is it. No right to live. But imagine another attorney in the courtroom of your soul. This one, a defense attorney who steps up to the bar and says, Your Honor, I don't dispute any of the evidence that's just been offered, but I do want to add one additional fact 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who made this man, made you in this courtroom. And the story we're told is that God himself has taken to himself the dead ones. He descended with them into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead victoriously that none should die and all should live and have everlasting life. And that is God's decision. By the way, that attorney in your life, that's what Jesus calls the advocate or the Holy Spirit. He will never accuse you. That's the other guy. First thing you need to do is decide who you're listening to because Jesus wants to get you out of hell. And that's where you need to begin too. Quit with the accusation and start listening to the one who invites you into the grace of Jesus Christ. And this is where Paul goes. Notice in verse 10, all of a sudden, a totally new sentence, verdict in his life. In verse 10, he says, He who rescued us from so deadly a peril will continue to rescue us. See what he's saying? Somehow I got out of that one, and I know he's going to keep getting me out of all of these things. No matter what, what kind of fix I get myself into or life gets me into, I know that I can trust the one who will always get me out in this life and in the next. That's why I love what Frederick Buechner says when he says, for those who understand the resurrection, the worst thing is never the last thing. Day three, practicing the resurrection. Here I invite you to discover that we can become better, not bitter. I don't know if you saw this news story. I think it was about two weeks ago. I saw it in the AP. There was a parrot who got lost uh, in California. His name is Nigel. Did you hear about Nigel? When Nigel got lost in Torrance, California, he spoke with a British accent. Four years later, when Nigel came back, he was speaking Spanish. (laughs) He was saying, ¿Qué pasa? What happened? And the truth is, nobody knows what happened uh, to Nigel. All they know is he was lost and now he's changed. (laughs) And you know what? When you and I get lost in life, one of two things can happen. We can get bitter or we can get better. And the Apostle Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of what happened to me because I'm better. And I want you to know you can be better too. If you learn to rely on God, if you practice the resurrection. For Paul, the resurrection is not just a one-time fact of history. It's not just something that you would say in church when you recite the Apostles' Creed or once in a while. No, it's the fact of his life. It's the way he lives his life. It's the way he faces every day. That's why he says, I am convinced so much. By the way, that's that same word rely. I am convinced, he says. Second Timothy, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him, meaning his life. Or Romans 8, for I am convinced that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you want to know what this looks like in the 21st century? You don't have to look any further than this community. One of your pastors, Steve Hayner. Steve Hayner was the guy who started the inn, our uh, ministry to the college students at a Tuesday night up here in Larson Hall. He went on to be president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He's now president of Columbia Theological Seminary. 
but he's also living under a sentence. The people around him are telling him, you have pancreatic cancer. This is a terminal illness. It's not going to go well for you. But Steve Hayner has decided that there's more than meets the eye in his case. And he's living with a very different sentence. Listen to what he's saying. Those of us who are reading his Caringbridge blogs, amazed by this. This is what he recently writes, Steve Hayner. So what is there to do in dark times? The first thing is not to be afraid or embarrassed to identify it. Unfortunately, in our culture, there is still a kind of shame connected with depression, as if we should never experience it. And after all, I'm the guy who signs every letter with joyfully. But joy is dependent on who I am and how I am loved more than on my circumstances. It's way too easy to equate blessing with circumstances instead of with God's loving embrace. The fact is, I'm blessed because I belong to God in life, in death, and in everything in between. Steve Hainer writes, Identifying that this is a dark time simply acknowledges the truth of my life, but says little about the condition of my heart. But truth always opens the door to new life. So I would rather face darkness full on. Does that sound like Steve Hayner? Those of you who know him, that's Steve. That's what it means to be a person who practices resurrection. This is the apprenticeship. This is what it's all about. Learning to do what Jesus did. And Jesus always relied on God. And so for us, every struggle is an opportunity to a little bit more let go of reliance upon ourselves and a little bit more to hold on to reliance on God, the one who raises the dead. And so tonight, I just I want to ask you to return to whatever your affliction is. We talked about it earlier. Go back there. What would it look like for you to rely on God in your struggle? What would it feel like to start to face it as Jesus would face it if he were you. Jesus knows you don't, have, you don't have what it takes. You don't have the capacity for that challenge. You don't. But he also knows that he does. And he wants to go through it with you every step of the way and give you strength through God's Holy Spirit. What would it be like for you to let God's decision stick inside of your soul? To let that be the truth about you? That you're loved, that you're forgiven. Back on death row, David Steffen, the murderer, he looked at his interviewer, Matt. He smiled and he pointed through the wall of a high penitentiary prison. And he said, on the other side of that wall, there's a rabbit who lives between two fences. And the rabbit has no sense of where it is. It doesn't know it's living out its life in a maximum security prison. It doesn't know. It eats clover and dandelions and wakes up early. It has no sense of being restricted by all these fences. And then he says, it's the same for me. I'm in prison, but I'm not letting myself be restricted simply because I'm wearing shackles and handcuffs. I'm a person. And I'm a person who is loved and forgiven by God. When Matt Fitzgerald finally wrote his magazine article, this is what he said about that statement. He said, I was shocked. 
In front of me was a man who had brutally killed a teenager. In front of me was a man who was loved by God. I had anticipated meeting a monster and found grace instead. Que pasa? What happened? The Son of God died. And the third day, he rose again from the dead. Let's pray. God, we're here to confess the truth. You gathered us here so that we could confess the truth about ourselves tonight. You know what? We struggle. We suffer and we have character flaws. And the truth is we don't have what it takes to make it. That's true. But the true truth of our lives is that you do. That you have grabbed a hold of us, our humanity, in the Savior Jesus Christ. That you have died for us, that you have risen for us, and that you right now live for us. So pour out your Holy Spirit upon our lives that we might shift our reliance from ourselves to you. We might trust in you and become convinced and persuaded that you are more than faithful in our lives. We pray it not just for our sakes, but for your sake, for your glory, and in your name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.